I've got the podcast all to myself. It's brilliant. I can do what I like. It's my very own, my very own uh, edition of. <sighs> I don't speak German. What's this one called? They must be destroyed on sight. It's my very own, my very own edition of uh, They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, starring me, Jack Graham, me alone, nobody else. Uh, and um, from now on, this show is entirely about uh, films I like. Uh, so no more of these bloody stupid uh, 70s exploitation movies and sex comedies and fucking vampire films and all this crap those other two like. No, no more of that. We're going to be we're going to be doing exclusively um, Soviet cinema from the 1920s. So our next episode will be, um, yeah, Strike. It will be, we're going to do all of the, uh, we're going to do all of the uh, Eisenstein movies. We're going to do Strike next. Uh, which is actually my favourite of the three, because uh, it's weird, because it's kind of surreal. Eisenstein kind of disowned it later on. He said it was uh, he said it was uh, sort of juvenile leftism, because of course <laughs> within within this context, you know, certain things are left and certain things are are right. You know, so Eisenstein is capable of looking back on Strike and saying. Oh, that's too left wing. <laughs> that's leftism. <laughs> but I like Strike because it's surreal and bonkers. And I'm, my least favourite is October, the last one. Just talking to myself now. But no, listeners, this is entirely my show now. Uh, I run it, just me. So I'll pick all the movies. Uh, and we're not having the, those other two back. I've sent them to the Gulag. Coming back now, so I'm going to stop talking. Lee can find this later. <sighs> You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. The following podcast about film often contains foul language, discussions of an adult nature, and spoilers for the films discussed are to be expected. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! Jack has a notebook. Yeah. Well, I have such a terrible memory. I need to. I need to have a notebook next to me when we do this because things occur to me and then I instantly forget them. Oh well, that's that's just part of the process. On they must be destroyed on site. That's why we do a movie and then get halfway to the next movie and they go, "Oh yeah, there's this one thing I wanted to mention from the last movie that I forgot about." Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're you're forgetting that you know. Unlike you, I give a fuck. So. Oh well. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he's getting the Patreon check this month. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. But I um, see you don't like capitalism, but you have a Patreon. Hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> You're recording this on on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so, welcome, comrades. It is they must be destroyed on site. Episode 195. I'm your host, Lee. Had enough rotten meat, Russell. Joined by my co-host, Daniel. Refuse to eat the borscht. Harper, how you doing, sir? I do indeed refuse to eat the borscht. 
even if it wasn't made with rotting meat, I would probably refuse to eat it. Like even good meat aboard that vessel is probably not really up to um, what I would what I prefer to be eating. But yeah, so I, I doubt there's even much meat in it. I'm sure they just sort of like strain the meat and then, then throw the meat out. And that's probably what they do. So, <laughs> and uh, we're pleased to be joined once again uh, by a former guest host, and uh, we always glad to have him back. Jack, take revenge on the bloodthirsty vampires, Graham. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm broadcasting from the middle of Storm Dennis, so I'm I'm hoping that we don't lose the power or that I don't get swept away during recording. In Britain, even our storms have boring names. <laughs> Dennis. <laughs> I'm reminded by the, uh, the my my immediate thing was not Dennis the Menace, but Dennis Nedry, who's the Wayne Knight character in Jurassic Park. And so I just imagine a like giant storm coming over, only it's like Wayne Knight, you know, going, you know, like going for Seinfeld or something. I don't know. That was the mental. Oh, the guy who plays Newman. Yeah. Who, get, right who gets spit in the face by one of them dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, that's him. That's him. Yeah. The, my, my, favorite, my favorite thing about that is that um, Wayne Knight's character in JFK is also called Newman. So my fan <laughs> theory is that the one is the other's descendant. Isn't he in? Um, he's in that Michael Douglas Sharon Stone movie too. Uh, oh, Basic Instinct. He yeah, is. Kind of, he he's, is. He's one of the he guys has, who watches hers. He has a long diatribe about how Michael Douglas was uh, only doing the things that he's doing because of that like fine Sharon Stone pussy. Um, he says <laughs> pussy a lot in that scene. I remember that very vividly from when I saw that film when I was twelve. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. This is how we begin podcast now. <laughs> Just random aside, vague memories of movies we've watched. It's yeah. not like we have anything interesting to talk about today either. Oh. Let's get people to tune in to our discussion of one of the greatest films ever made. Let's start by making vague Wayne Knight references. That's yeah. the that's the way we do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this is that is this show, so. <laughs> it's, it's your USP. People that tune into this show know what they're going to get. I should hope they know by now. Um, yeah, so we're going to be looking at uh, Battleship Potemkin from 1925. But before we get into that, we do have a couple comments here, so I'll get through these really quick. These are both from the Facebook group. Jay Deering suggested a movie that we should put on our list, I guess, to to watch. Uh, and this is something we'll have to put on for round two of our little cycle here, I guess, because we've passed 1924. But this is, uh, and I'm going to butcher the fuck out of this. It's a German film, Die Nibligen. Siegfried? Nibelungen? Nibelungen? Yeah, something along those lines. Whatever. It, the German movie about Siegfried, the, the knight who kills the dragon and all that yeah, shit. Yeah. 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 Nibelungen. Nibelungen. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I looked at it. It looks good. Put it on the list. That's what we'll do. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. Uh, and we have one from this uh, guy named uh, James... He sounds like a serial killer, quite frankly, because he, he uses three names. James Slater Murphy. Or a presidential assassin, I think. <laughs> going, going by the three names and his interests. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's usually no point in my getting in touch to continually say that this is my favorite film podcast every week, but I wanted to take just a moment to say that the silent film series has been fucking excellent. Just a real joy. Keep it up. I'll consider you guys to have surrendered if you hit the 1940s before the middle of the year. <laughs> and I let them know that, yeah, we, we might not get through the 30s 
by the end of this year. So <laughs> I've I've got at least twelve episodes planned before we get to nineteen forty. So like that gets us even if we do every week, that gets us to like Mayish. So we don't even really have to extend it all, and that's like kind of moving at a fairly good clip through the stuff I've got in yeah. the thirty. So probably 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 accurate. Probably yes. Yeah. Uh, so thanks, James, and get back on the fucking internet and let's start recording again, you son of a bitch. Yeah, he should come on for some of these. Yeah, he really should. Uh, if you want the list there, James, we'll share it with you. You, you pick some stuff, and you'll have that episode uh, cordoned off for you. So we can move on now to uh, what we've watched recently, and uh, we'll throw over to Jack first. I've gone back to my X-Files marathon. People who follow me on Twitter will know that I was late last year. I was re-watching the X-Files, and I had a break because it was just... That was, a, that was a lot of X-Files, and mm-hmm. I needed a break, and there were a couple of uh, things towards the end of the year. What's that thing? Christmas. Yeah, that's it. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah, they so have I've Christmas taken Christmas in the, in the UK, Jack? I wasn't we aware. do. We oh. do. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we kind of, um, we don't have, uh, presents or trees or decorations or chocolate or anything, but we, we do have the, we do have the, uh, the, the festival. We do have the festival. Uh, it, it consists entirely of us sitting around complaining about things. So it's just like normal, really. <laughs> I thought, uh, oh, I, yeah, I heard, I heard there wasn't Christmas for a while because Britain used to be like the socialist utopia and then Boris Johnson brought Christmas back. Well, this is it. We've left the EU, so we've got our independence and our sovereignty back. So I'm assuming we can have Christmas this time. So that, that'll be nice. That'll be nice. Uh, yeah, so I went back to the X-Files, and I've been watching the last couple of seasons. The last, Well, the last couple of seasons are of the original run, you know, where Mulder disappears and uh, mm-hmm. that guy from Terminator 2 turns up. Uh, I, I know he's in Terminator 2, even though I've never seen it. Yep. Um, That's and- the only thing you need to know about Robert Patrick, ultimately. Yeah, do you know he's he's really good. I I think he's a good actor. Um, and uh, I've been I enjoyed season eight a lot more than I expected to, given its reputation. And I think season nine is okay. It's a bit uh, I don't know. It's a bit they're not quite getting it. They're not quite getting the sort of triangular relationship. And I can't help thinking as much as I as much as I think Gillian Anderson's great. I think it would be a stronger show at this point if Scully wasn't in it anymore, and they just let the the new leads have it you know gave them room to breathe but it's still entertaining enough uh what else have i watched yeah i watched i rewatched the 1990 mini series version of it stephen king's it mm-hmm. um because one of these days i'm going to go on kit's podcast kit and it and we're going to talk about <laughs> it with kit and uh yeah that's crap that's that's really <laughs> <laughs> really, 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 really bad. Apart from Tim Curry, who's great, and I enjoyed Tim Curry in that so much that I wanted to watch some more some Tim Curry. So I rewatched uh, Clue from oh, yeah. 1985, the movie version of the of the board game, which is called Cluedo in Britain. And uh, yeah, that's uh, I really enjoyed watching that again. Somewhat unexpectedly, it turned out to be kind of a satire of corruption and hypocrisy in 1950s America, which, um, yeah, I didn't remember that, possibly because the last time I saw it, I was about 12. But um, yeah, that's what I've been watching lately. Yeah, right on. I haven't seen Clue in, I think, since the 80s. I think that's the last time I saw it. (laughs) They used to air it in, like, constant rotation on Comedy Central here. And I know I've seen bits of it, and my wife really likes it, but I've never actually sat down and watched it. So... You know, I think, I think the only thing I've since since watching it on TV in the '80s, I think the only things I've seen of it after that is just every once in a while I'd peruse like pictures of Colleen Camp in the maid outfit, and that's about it. Oh yeah, yeah. 
There is a weird sort of synchronicity because one of the characters in Clue is uh, Mr. Green is played by Michael McKean, who turns up as a recurring character in the back end of the X-Files. So it's been... That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's meant to be. Yeah, and I like the later seasons of the X-Files too because for a while there, like in sort of the middle seasons, it was getting too high on the uh, mythology stuff that just never really resonated with me at all just like i didn't care i I would rather it had been monster of the week every episode i I, i've kind of been reassessing the myth arc stuff myth arc stuff in the x-files because i found a lot of it quite good actually Mm. but um yeah i don't know maybe it's just the distance of a few years and following along at the time and the fact that they were clearly just making it up as they went along yeah but and going back to it now with as i I say with a bit of distance and a bit of foreknowledge i've kind of appreciated the myth arc ones a bit more than i used to i think some of them are are really quite good it does kind of reach the point where it's just top heavy and it uh, they do a very wise thing which is they kind of clear it out they kind of end that storyline the big overarching storyline they suddenly decide in the middle of series six or five or something to just yeah this is over now they're all dead and it's you, you wouldn't think that would work but it kind of does the problem is that they never find anything quite as compelling to put in its place which yeah. leaves the, the back end of the series feeling a bit aimless but uh yeah I, i've been enjoying it more than i expected to oh, nice Daniel. I've been kind of watching around stuff, uh, nothing I really want to talk about, but I did, um, so we are recording this on Valentine's uh, weekend, and uh, I did go out with my wife. We didn't go out on Valentine's night because that was a Friday night, and I'm old, and uh, going out on a Friday night is not a thing that you do when you're decrepit like me, Um, (laughs) but we did uh, did, uh, go out for lunch and then a, a matinee today. Um, so I had a uh, sushi with my wife for, for lunch, uh, which was delicious. And then uh, we saw Birds of Prey, which oh. is a, a whole hell of a lot of fun. You know, um, <laughs> I'm on record as being like the like Margot Robbie super fan here, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, every movie should have Margot Robbie as far as I'm concerned. If she were not already a star, we would call this her star making turn. Like she is astonishing in this the movie around her is also largely very good i think it's kind of playing on that like deadpool template of uh, doing this sort of like uh you know it's breaking the fourth wall a bit it's it's i mean there is kind of an omnipresent narration that uh, harley quinn is um uh doing throughout the film so you do get uh, quite a bit of that um and you do get a little bit it's not quite as overt as like you know third wall break inside a third wall break, you know, sort of sort of thing, or fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break, like sort of stuff that you get in Deadpool. It's not quite as violent and bloody as that is, but it's definitely kind of edging in that direction. Some of the violence is probably a little bit dark for how kind of like goofy the film is overall. But overall, I think the film really, really works. I really enjoyed it. The other thing is that I think some of like the actual like through line, like once you get kind of through the kind of narrative character setup, just kind of watching Harley Quinn kind of do her amazing thing. It does kind of end up with, uh, and now we have like kind of the plot of the movie, which is a tiny bit generic and it does kind of get a little bit wearying towards the end. Uh, the movie is about an hour and 51 minutes long. It definitely kind of feels it like I would, you know, it would be kind of nice if it was a little bit shorter, but there's not really anything I'd cut out of it. Cause I kind of love everything in it. Um, some of these action sequences are some of the best action sequences of their t- kind that you can see. It's cartoony Looney Tunes violence and it's glorious. You know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, Margot Robbie is great. And uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is great. And a lot of the other uh, people in it are, are pretty good. Are 
pretty good. That was isn't, me. Uh, isn't Rosie Perez in that? Rosie Perez is in it. Um, she's not in it a lot, but she's in it quite a bit. She's pretty amazing. I do kind of love her in everything. Uh, mm-hmm. I was surprised. I really didn't like look at this at all, except like, oh, it's the Birds of Prey Harley Quinn movie. Yes, I'm going to go see that when it's released. I was a little like watching trailers yesterday and going like, oh, that actually does look pretty good. I wish it uh, would make more money. It is It is kind of one of the things where it's like, it's disappointing. It didn't make, uh, it's not going to make a billion dollars. Didn't they um, uh, like panic and retitle it Harley Quinn? birds of prey or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they're they're or... kind of they're kind of like it feels like maybe one of those like corporate marketing things where like mm. the corporate people are sort of like blaming it on the theater chains kind of renaming it because the full title is Birds of Prey: The Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn <laughs> and that's too long to go on like a marquee <laughs> or whatever. And so it does kind of feel like maybe there's a, you know, the studios are kind of saying one thing and the theater chains are saying another. And I mean, whatever, I hope it makes money, but like ultimately all that is kind of like, I don't care. The movie is really good. If you haven't seen it and you listen to this podcast, you'll probably enjoy it unless you are a douchebag, in which case you are a douchebag and I don't care. So <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. I got a few things I'll mention here. I saw don't fuck with cats. I thought it was all right. It's not perfect. I think it spends too much time. I didn't re- actually realize going into it because I didn't do any reading on it. So I didn't realize this was like one of our Canadian potential serial killers. Like he never got yeah. to officially be a serial killer, but uh, Luca Magnata. I think it spends a little too much time talking about him and a little too little too much time trying to connect his what he was doing to his influences for movies and stuff like that. Like it, it seems a little too sensationalist. When I'd rather know about the victim, uh, Jun Lin, mm-hmm. who, and they, they seem to just kind of sweep him to the side by the end of it, which was kind of disappointing. It gets a little moralistic and heavy handed at the end, too. Like, if we all just stepped away from our computers, maybe, you know, maybe a lot of this stuff wouldn't happen. Well, no, the people who stepped up to their computers actually helped catch this motherfucker. <laughs> and the police dropped the fucking ball on it. So I'm like, it's mixed signals from it. But, uh, for the most part, I, I did enjoy it quite a bit, uh, but it, it's definitely not perfect. Well, there is the kind of, like, body in a luggage container, you know, like, you find that the police, and, and the, you know, they failed the guy pretty quickly through standard police tactics. I think the real challenge is the fact that this group of internet nerds found this guy before he actually killed somebody. Yeah. And that was the moment at which, and this isn't even like necessarily about the police, because like as a leftist and I have like deep disrespect for anything that is like, you know, uh, built around the uh, the structure of the police, you know. But at the same time, you know, social services, like somebody in a reasonable society, somebody would have reached out to this guy and like done something about this beforehand. And the fact that like he literally had to kill somebody. And this brutal, like, serial killer-like fashion, yeah. Hannibal Lecter style, practically, you know, yeah. uh, before anybody gave a shit, is uh, the is the great, like, kind of untold story of that documentary. And so, like, really, almost, like, kind of thinking back on it now, I'd say just watch the first part and then just be done. With, you know, that's yeah. the important part of this documentary, ultimately. It's a bit, it is a bit too long, too. It's You could tell the story more effectively in about an hour and a half than three hours. But, yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of the Netflix model anyway. You want to, like, you want to stretch it out as a series, you know, Anatomy of a Murderer and all those other ones, you know, you, you want to... Just be glad they didn't do a 12-part series, of which nine parts are literally interviewing individual cops 
who went and found like some key piece of evidence that they used or they do like which is the podcast model. Yeah. Uh, Or they do, they do five episodes of, of their 20 minute interview with the mother and her batshit crazy theories about, (laughs) Oh no, all along it was this puppet master who was telling my son, my poor son, Luca to do this stuff. It's like lady, Come on. I, f- I feel like the three of us need to do a uh, podcast about terrible true crime documentaries and podcasts. <laughs> I feel like this is uh, this is something that needs to happen. It's going to be our this is this is going to be our big idea. We're going to make millions. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we'll get to that after the homicide life on the streets. The podcast. <laughs> yeah. Sometime in like 2035. We'll yeah. finally get around yeah. to that. I'll put it on my master list of of podcast <laughs> projects that I, that I'm going to do at some point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other one I watched, Parasite, which oh, everyone I need to see that. I need to. See everyone that. is saying is the best movie of the year, and you know what? I, I haven't seen enough movies from 2019, but I'm not about to disagree with anybody. It was really good, and I don't want to say much about it because it does definitely has some. Uh, it definitely turns a couple times, and it builds some ex- exquisite tension on the sort of reveals that happen in this film. Um, I mean, I can give you the basic premise is that this family of con artists basically con their way into becoming the helpers of this rich family of just, like, you know, clueless dumbasses. And uh, so they, they sort of, you know, try to work their way into squalor by conning these people into thinking they're people they're not. From there, it spirals out of control quite delightfully and there's a lot of cool stuff and it's just a beautiful movie too it's it's really shot beautiful the best kind of asian cinema that takes you actually into the world a little bit and lets you see like the people instead of it just being uh, sort of an americanized version of of an asian film or something like that i thought it was really good and uh definitely gonna be rewatching. it i'll probably buy this actually it was that good and daniel's being just attacked by his dog right now <laughs> Speaking of pets, I should say, um, based on Jeff Williams' uh, recommendation, I have acquired a copy of Feel a Day, because uh, oh. I think it was one of the episodes of this show I was on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Williams actually was uh, recommending this movie, Feel a Day, um, which is a animated French movie, or German, yeah. I'm not sure, about a cat that solves a murder. And I said, yeah, I've I've read the novel that's based on, and I have. And I've now acquired the movie. I haven't watched it yet, but I've acquired a copy of the movie. And I, uh, yeah, that's it. I'm going to watch it. So nice. I'll let you know. I'll let you know yeah. how that goes. <laughs> uh, yeah. My my apologies. I literally saw my dog kind of looking at me, and I put the microphone on mute, and then took my glasses off, and that was her sign to aggressively lick my face. Oh, <laughs> the podcast's over. I can yeah. start molesting him. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And the only other one I'll mention, Uncut Gems, the uh, Adam Sandler movie on Netflix. Really good, but it's one of those movies where if you're watching it, you got to expect like everyone in it to be a scumbag. And if you're into movies about massively irritating scumbags and you still kind of feel sorry for them and you're still kind of rooting for them, if you can get into that sort of thing, this movie really does it really well. Like Adam Sandler is just a despicable piece of shit in this film. But at the same time, you're like, you're, you're following them around and the tension is so high that you're like, the movie just keeps building you up, letting you down, building you up, letting you down. And when you finally get to the point where it just can't build anymore, big release. Like it's, it is basically just sort of cinematic sex tension. 
And I, 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 I didn't think I'd ever say like cinematic sex in relation to an Adam Sandler movie, <laughs> but, but it's, it's just the way the, the movie just keeps, keeps right at, right at your throat and, and keeps stringing you along and uh, keeps building you up and dropping you down. It's just, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. I got to say, and this is probably intentional too. The score is like really, it's good, but it's very intrusive. And now that I think about it, it was just there to put you on edge too. It, it's like, it's, it's there just to increase that feeling and make you go, Oh my God, is he going to get caught? Is he going to get killed? Is he going to, is this going to happen to him? You know? And what's it, um, what's it actually about? It's uh, Adam Sandler is this Jewish jewelry seller or whatever. Hold on. Hold on. Wait a minute. Adam Sandler plays a Jewish character. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. He's acquired these, uh, what is it? Is it, uh, is it an emerald or, uh, some, something, some, some rare uncut gem that from, you know, one of these horribly exploited African fucking mines, he's, he's looking to turn like a big profit on it. And he's like also a degenerate gambler. So he owes everybody in town. He's got mobsters and stuff tracking him down and shit. And he's, he's just, he's just doing like deal after deal and moving his money around and, trying to stay ahead of the mobsters and getting killed. And he's got a mistress on the side and all kinds of like all kinds of sort of tropes of these sort of things, but it's just done so well. And the movie never stops. It just keeps going and going and going and going. It's really good. It's really, really good. It, it, it the, the, uh, the hype around it is actually pretty apt. I'd say. I might give that a go as I, I was already contemplating having a go at murder mystery, which is another Adam Sandler movie. So I've, you know, I've kind of, already taken the step i've already kind of said to myself yeah i i could watch an adam sandler movie well yeah punch it, drunk love that's yeah you should watch i yeah okay i will this is probably his best <laughs> this is this is probably his best best thing he's done since punch drunk love I, i'd say so punch like, drunk love just just for for jack and for anyone new to the podcast is the one that like paul came on for that one and that's the like um, Paul Thomas Anderson after yeah. Magnolia did like the 90 minute kind of weird love story movie. And uh, Paul came on and went, this is amazing. I don't know. Like I was expecting Adam Sandler movie and this is actually like really good. And he had like <laughs> nothing but praise for it. And if that doesn't tell you why you need to watch Punch Drunk Love as a fan of this podcast, I don't know what will. <laughs> you know? It's yeah. yeah, I've kind of had that on my list of things to watch ever since you guys gave it positive reviews. But you know, I don't know. Every time Adam Sandler tries acting, it, it just goes badly. But I don't know. Who knows? Maybe it'll be good. Uh, all right, so we're gonna take a quick break, play uh, some podcast promos, some music, and we're gonna be back with Battleship Potemkin. Broadcasting from the Cursed Earth, the Psycho Semanticast. Let us face without panic the reality of our time, the fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities, and let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have a, uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac uh, who sends off uh, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him. Neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, D.C. to have a rally saying, Heil Trump. We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate greaseballs. We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? But that's police harassment. We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew it. You can only see them with these special glasses. The Psycho Semanticast. Ah! 
Okay, Battleship Potemkin from 1925, directed by Sergei Eisenstein, uh, who is also known for October, 10 Days That Shook the World, uh, Alexander Nevsky, and uh, Ivan the Terrible, part one and two. And to be very honest, like those are just the ones that IMDb says he's known for. I've, I've never seen any of his films, so... I just, I honestly, this is the one film of his I actually do know about <laughs> that, that I've actually heard of before, which is is more on me than anything else. This is written by, uh, oh God, here we go. Uh, this is written by. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've done so many Italian films of just listening to Lee go through Italian syllables, and now we get to try Russian. So, <laughs> so uh, this is written by Nina Gadsanova. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein, <laughs> Gregory Alexandrov, Nikolay Azif, and uh, Sergei Tetrakov. That's that pretty good. Well done. Okay. Um, <laughs> starring uh, Alexander Antonov as Grigory Valnuchuk, Vladimir Barsky as uh, Commander Golikov, Grigory Alexandrov as Chief Officer Gilia Rovsky, <laughs> Ivan Bovrov as. Young sailor flogged while sleeping. What a credit! Young yeah. sailor flogged while sleeping. I mean, there's that not. Sounds like that's either there are only two times that that uh, credit gets used. One, yeah, yeah. One, uh, uh, battleship Potemkin. Uh, two, <laughs> porn, porn. Yeah, that's, those are, those are the two. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, uh, the, we'll get into it. Not to say, character. not to say that battleship Potemkin is <laughs> also a porn. We could, I could imagine this on Pornhub. Uh, please continue with the cast list. What would what would the porn parody of this be called? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> ba- battleship, p- put it in him. <laughs> battleship, poke it in him. <laughs> Maybe they're just the all the scenes would be would just be down in the in the lower deck where they're sleeping on the uh, the hammocks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we'll no, I mean, it. there's always revolting semen as an option. But. There is, yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess someone called Gomorov as militant sailor, Alexander Livshin as petty officer, in Poltavezvn as woman <laughs> with pince-nez, Konstantin Feldman as student agitator, Prokondrako as uh, mother carrying wounded boy, A. Guberman as wounded boy. And Beatrice Vitoldi as woman with baby carriage, and yeah, I mean, honestly, those credits are funny. But we'll get into it. I, I think the characterization is so shallow that really th- those are the characters. Like that, it's like you, you didn't even need to give them a name. Really, I don't think that can be quite right because I think Constantine Feldman is the name of an, of a historical figure. He was he was actually involved in the events. Well, so, uh, yeah, a couple of them are like the the, the sort of key. The key oh, is it, is it the actual guy? They got him to um, to be in the film. Maybe that could be it. Um. Oh no! Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, that was in my trivia there somewhere. One, yeah, one of them that was involved in the events is actually in the film. Ah, maybe that's it then. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. So we have a uh, synopsis here from someone called Constantine Dolutsky. Constantine Feldman? No. <laughs> was he still alive when IMDb was a thing? And he, he gets wrote, everywhere. He wrote the plot summary? That would be amazing. It's actually I was, a, va- I was, a vampire. I was involved in the 1905 uh, incident. I, I co-starred in the movie in a cameo, and I lived long enough for IMDb. 
he's, uh, he's either a vampire or he's a Highlander and he's got a Scottish <laughs> accent. <laughs> Based on the historical events, the movie tells the story of a riot at the battleship Potemkin. What started as a protest strike when the crew was given rotten meat for dinner ended in a riot. The sailors raised a red flag and tried to ignite a, the revolution in their home port, Odessa. And yeah, we'll just get into it. We'll throw over to you uh, first, Jack. What are your general thoughts on this? Well, I mean, what do you what do you even say about this? This is one of the most significant movies ever made. It's routinely been voted, you know, one of the greatest movies ever made. It's always it's constantly on the on the film on the film critics' big lists of greatest films ever made. It, and so, what you're saying is, shit. I get it. I get it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, how can you uh, how can you understand the reputation of this of this piece of crap? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's clearly one of the most significant motion pictures ever made. Loads of people, uh, you know, David Selznick thought it was amazing. Charlie Chaplin thought it was uh, the greatest movie ever made, etc. Loads of people have thought it was the greatest movie ever made, and it's it's clearly I don't know if it's the greatest movie ever made, but it's one of the most significant, important, influential. Uh, interesting experimental films this ever is made. Citizen and it's... Kane before there was Citizen Kane. Well, yeah, yeah, and and in you know, with all due respect to Citizen Kane, which I think gets a bit of a bad rap these days as a, as, a, as an understandable reaction, and I think is genuinely a, a, a great film, Citizen Kane. It's you know, Citizen Kane wouldn't exist without this. So much wouldn't exist without this. And there is actually there's an interesting kind of connection with Orson because Orson, of course, was a man of the theatre. Who uh, who ended up in cinema from the theatre? The same is true of Sergei Eisenstein. He started out in the theatre company called uh, Prolet Cult, Mayakovsky's um, Prolet Cult Theatre Group. And the other interesting thing is that uh, Orson Welles famously taught himself how to make films by getting uh, John Ford's stagecoach and playing around with it, cutting it mm-hmm. and recutting it, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's kind of what Eisenstein did because after the revolution, there was a big blockade. All the capitalist powers blockaded Russia so that, you know, people couldn't get food or anything like that. And one of the other things that the new regime couldn't import was film stock. Uh, so basically, for years after the revolution, they didn't have any film to make new, make new movies. So what these people who were interested in being film directors were doing at uh, the new big nationalized, consolidated state film institution they were studying film and they were theorizing film and one of the things they were doing to do that was they were they were getting old films that already existed like for instance griffith's birth of a nation and intolerance and stuff like that and they were cutting them and recutting them and playing around with them and making kind of their own edits of these films so that's eisenstein man of the theater taught himself how to make films by cutting already existing films just like orson welles um so that's interesting uh, Which yeah, also is kind of a, like a YouTube thing, like not to not to diminish that or anything, but like so many like kids kind of get into get into like talking about film, and so many filmmakers that are kind of up and coming today basically start playing around with editing of footage mm-hmm. from like bullshit on YouTube, and sh- you know, like it does feel like we've come full circle on this. You know, I made a mistake now. I, uh, just now I said Mayakovsky. I meant Myhold. Sorry, pro- product cult theater guy. Yeah, you, we were going to get a thousand emails about that i know <laughs> i can't I, I probably can't pronounce either so it's fine i thought you did <laughs> bloody well actually i was okay. gonna say lee deserves a round of applause with the names yeah i feel like there's the thing of like yes i agree lee deserves a round of, i feel like the thing with italian is all those vowels just 
do like uh you know north american yeah. accents just do not uh i think it's just because i'm such an introvert and i don't talk much in real life <laughs> so i have little practice <laughs> a podcaster who doesn't know how to talk this is this is actually our brand, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's a tautology. because <laughs> yeah. they're so, speaking and then they're talking. You know. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Jack. Please continue. No, I've, I've done really as an intro. That's it. I mean, it's uh, I love it. It's brilliant, and that's not an uncontroversial opinion. Let's put it that way. Hmm. All right, Daniel. Then it's kind of one of those things of like there are a lot of films where I go like yeah, I've seen it or I haven't seen it, kind of based on. <laughs> There were a lot of things that I saw on like Turner Classic Movies at some point in my like teens or twenties. Maybe it counts as I've seen it and maybe it doesn't. And so like you could kind of go back in my history and maybe I've said, Oh yeah, I've seen Battleship Potemkin, and maybe you can hear me say, Oh, I really haven't. I saw it at two AM on TCM, vaguely kind of looking at it and eating ramen noodles or something, you know, like, you know, and that's not like really seeing Battleship Potemkin and certainly not understanding Battleship Potemkin if I saw it at like, you know, 19 or whatever. I mean, you could count this as a first watch. I'm not going to really count it as a first watch in terms of like best of, because yeah, obviously this is one of the greatest films ever made. And there's really no question about that. What I find interesting is that it's often sort of considered, at least in terms of the sort of, film critic you know kind of analysis of it as something that is you know great because of its sort of invention or or sort of like a popularization of the montage technique mm-hmm. um like, like people kind of see it as like oh this is like, like a technically amazing film that is otherwise uninteresting it's kind of like what i see yeah. from sort of sort of sort of film circles what i would kind of argue that this film should be seen as is like this is a model of propaganda ultimately and, and i don't mean that in a i mean that in a morally neutral way like propaganda is a it should be considered a morally neutral term as far as i'm concerned you know yeah um yeah. we use it in this way of you know like like you know captain marvel yeah a film that like i like broadly has literally a scene in which our lead character, who is one of the most powerful beings in the universe, changes her like colors from the imperialist aggressor controlling the universe to the American Air Force colors as a way of like <laughs> displaying her independence from that, you know? Yeah. And so uh, when you, um, <laughs> you know, that's overt propaganda, although it's uh, coded within like a thing that's, you know, a hundred years after or nearly a hundred years after Battleship Potemkin. Uh, Battleship Potemkin is obviously propaganda. It's literally funded by, and, um, you know, I, Jack surely knows the history of this better than I do. And so I don't want to technically mistake, but it's, it's funded by Russia. It's, 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 a, and it it's a legit direct... changes some of the facts of the outcome too. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, so, so there is a like propagandist element to this and it's powerful for those reasons and the fact that it hews so closely to the facts while like changing things mm-hmm. as a way of you know heightening the real conflict for the purposes of cinema and for the purposes of propaganda speaks to its quality and not to its like oh this is fucking bullshit kind of kind of element to it you know the fact that it's also like literally like the cutting edge of like where where the technology and where the art was going to be speaks also highly of, you know, kind of, kind of that school. I mean, like the Kuleshov effect, which we now like talk about casually, like this is one of those kind of early things, which then kind of becomes part of this thing. I find it most interesting just kind of watching it kind of, 
quote unquote for the first time, but having seen it before, right? I found it most interesting to think about as as a as a historical artifact, as something that was used as propaganda for this particular ideology, which I you know, like, you know, I basically agree with, you know. Um, so, like, I don't know, I have, like, kind of kind of conflicted feelings slightly about kind of the way that we talk about the film. And that's kind of more kind of my, my kind of overall thoughts than anything kind of about the film itself, which is obviously everything that every, like, person talking about the enormous importance of this thing to the history of cinema is clearly correct you know and hopefully we will talk about some of the details of that uh, as we can move forward but but that's kind of my my overall thought yeah if this is propaganda and it clearly is propaganda then that is kind of proof in itself that propaganda needn't be uh, crude either artistically or in terms of the way it presents uh, ideas and facts you have this uh, this clearly amazing piece of work it is clearly propaganda ergo propaganda is not necessarily crude and and uh, dishonest um i mean you compare this to like triumph of the will this is clearly well, yeah, I mean, I, this is clearly this is like eight years i think before triumph of the will is 33 right so this is eight years before triumph of the will a much more significant like, bit of cinema technology and like art artistry than triumph of the will and uh they're not even you know, on the same planet you know actually it's, good <laughs> you yeah, know and it. speaking to and, and i hope we kind of get into that for the record i do have an actual piece of fascist propaganda buried in our list and we are definitely going to do that at some time in the next few months you know i haven't told lee which one it is because i don't think he's looked that far ahead yet but uh there is a piece of actually fascist propaganda we're definitely going to do but uh you know, <clears throat> Reading around, I routinely found people comparing this to Triumph of the Will and Birth of a Nation as if they're equivalent, and mm. they're not. Because you can say, well, Triumph of the Will and Battleship Potemkin and Birth of a Nation are all great films, technically speaking, and I would actually quibble with that, certainly with regards to Triumph of the Will, the technical brilliance of which is ridiculously overstated. In, in fact, Dan Olson says in, in his very Check video about Dan this. Dan Olson's video about Triumph of the Will, that's all you need to know about Triumph of the Will. Done. Exactly. As he himself says, the idea that this is a masterpiece of cinema and incredibly innovative and stuff is itself Nazi propaganda. It's not a, good, it's not a great innovative amazing experimental path-breaking film that's not true and birth of a nation I, I think is also i think its technical brilliance and importance is overstated although it's it is it is a well-made film it's not i mean eisenstein admired dw griffith and learned from him while condemning his politics but you routinely find them compared as if they are equivalent and they're not not just on the level of artistic excellence and inno innovation but also you know, Battleship Potemkin, for all that it does leave stuff out, I mean, one of the biggest problems with it in terms of its portrayal of history is that it stops at the point where it stops and you don't see what happens next. But yeah. in terms of its depiction of the events that we actually see, it is actually very accurate, which, you know, Triumph of the Will is a documentary, so it, it, it shows you stuff that actually happened, but it gives a deeply misleading impression. And Birth of a Nation is just a flat-out pack of fucking lies. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this this, yeah. this tells you stuff that is essentially true. So I think that's pretty important, don't you? I think that's a pretty yeah, big difference, absolutely. actually. The Odessa Steps massacre, I mean, that's inspired by a massacre that happened beforehand anyway. So he's just kind of he's sticking that in there to make a point. 
Well, yeah, I mean, Eisenstein was, like many people, he was deeply affected by the Bloody Sunday Massacre, which happened in, oh. um, in January of 1905. You know, that was, a, that was the czarist troops opening fire on a peaceful demonstration of civilians led by a priest. They marched to the, the palace to ask the Tsar if they could have an elected parliament, please. And the response of the Tsarist regime, anyway, I mean, it's difficult to... It's difficult often to put responsibility directly at the feet of the Tsar because he often, you know, a lot of atrocities committed in his name weren't directly ordered by him. But that doesn't really absolve him because he was a, a hapless, out of touch, idiotic fool who wasn't in charge of his own government. So you're in the field, Jack. Come on. I, love, I love listening to Jack like want to use the word idiot, but also knowing that it's directly connected to uh, eugenics and like knowing that he's going to get cancelled if he does. That's a, uh, I have, a feeling yeah. I have a lot. Um, <laughs> I think I did actually use it there, so apologies. You did. Um, no, no, I, didn't. I, I think, uh, yeah, this is a complicated... We can move on from that. Let's just move on. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, the Tsarist regime was deeply uh, violent and, uh, and brutal and repressive. And, uh, yeah, the, the events depicted in the film do essentially happen. The, the troops of the town and Cossacks were sent to violently attack people who'd gathered on the the steps the richelieu steps which is what they were actually called in odessa and the film i mean the film actually it's often called crude propaganda that paints the sailors as saintly and perfect and paints the the czarist regime in, in a completely negative light etc etc the film actually downplays certain things. It could go further. Like the film doesn't mention the fact it just cuts straight after the massacre. It cuts straight to the fact that the, the mutineers on the ship are shelling the town, right? It doesn't mention the fact that they gave the town an ultimatum, the town authorities, an ultimatum stand down or we will shell you. And then when the, the town authorities didn't do what they, they told them to do, they fired warning shots over the top of the building where the town authorities were gathered. You know, it leaves that out. Well, that's something that actually shows you how reasonable they were. There's lots of things like that. They didn't want... Uh, the, the guys in charge of the mutiny on the ship, they didn't want to uh, execute the officers, or some of them didn't. And then you have you have the, the fact that the town authorities actually said, yes, you can have uh, Vakulinchuk's funeral in the town. We won't attack you, honest. And they had Vakulinchuk's funeral in town, and they attacked the people at the funeral, and yeah. the people gathered to attend the funeral. So the film actually goes easy on the town authorities in terms of in terms of its depiction of, of, of the facts. And then it doesn't show you the repression after this whole thing, after the, the events in the film finish. So it's all very well to say, oh, it's simplistic, crude propaganda. It shows you the truth. It, essentially, it shows you the truth, and it could go further in its message if it wanted to, if it yeah. wanted to really lean on the pen, you know. So in what sense could this possibly be the same sort of thing as Birth of a Nation, which, as I say, is a pack of fucking lies? And yeah, you're absolutely right. Our whole idea of propaganda is itself an ideological notion now. Back in the in the early 20th century, it was a neutral term, you know. Um, now we think, now our ideological notion of what propaganda is, is when they, whoever they are, criticize us. That's what we think propaganda is now. So, I mean, yeah. this is a perfect example of this, right? I was on YouTube looking around at documentaries about Eisenstein and Battleship Potemkin to prepare for this uh, podcast. And I found one that was a Telesur documentary. Uh, and I'm watching it on, on YouTube. 
and a little thing pops up at the bottom of the screen that says, oh, just so as you know, Telesur is funded by multiple Latin American governments. And you get this when you watch an RT video on, on YouTube and watch you, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying RT is fine. You know, you shouldn't approach RT with skepticism. You should because it's funded and partly controlled by the Russian government and Putin, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't get these little warning warnings on stations or channels that repeat blatant pro-american you don't, you don't get this on like cnn no, no. Yeah. exactly msnbc and, when msnbc posts say like you know and bernie sanders is a terrible socialist and will people elect him uh you don't hear that as like uh, this is uh effectively funded by the uh, u.s defense industry like, yeah. <laughs> yeah and so is you know iron man and captain marvel etc et yeah, sure, yeah. talking about and you you have to remember these films were made by a government that was trying to communicate with a massive population, a vast number of whom were illiterate. And they had these agitprop trains that they sent out to the towns and the villages. And they're often framed as just this sort of sinister propaganda effort where you they sent the trains out to tell people what to think. The trains were fascinating. They had amazing interactive art exhibits on them and stuff like that designed by these incredibly significant artists they sent them out i mean I'm, again i'm not a, an uncritical supporter of the soviet regime even from the start i'm not an uncritical supporter of it and certainly after a certain point it becomes completely impossible to defend but you mean you're not gonna put you're not gonna put me in a gulag uh, well, yeah, obviously, I'm going to put you in a gulag. Daniel. You're going to put me, but only me. I'm the only yeah, one. Just yeah. you specifically. Just yeah. me specifically. I get to build a railroad in Siberia for the next 20 years. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's your, yeah, you'll like it. It's a fetish thing. <laughs> if I could if I could grow a mustache like Joseph uh, Stalin, would I be all right? Like you'd be, you'd yeah, be that's, fine with me. That was the thing. It was the, it was the facial hair. People don't mm -hmm. realize that was how you were judged. Uh, orthodox or unorthodox it was it was a facial hair thing i feel like i have a beard very similar to a dostoevsky character but you know like that's yeah it's a... quite it's quite tolstoyan your beard yeah um if you, if you had the same if you had the same thing going with your hair you would look like the priest in this film yeah <laughs> <laughs> very much very much yeah uh, so i've ranted enough lee what do you think of the film i like it a lot it's definitely a technical masterpiece i mean the stuff he's doing in this film my favorite shot in this is the little three-shot sequence of the lion statue. Yeah. I fucking love that because it's it's clearly three different statues, but it's shot in a way to make it look like the lion is getting up and, and paying attention to something that's happening. And this is happening just with the shelling of the... Uh, theater or whatever it is where the the uh, headquarters is set up for the uh, to, for the czarists or whatever i felt like sometimes it dragged a little bit like i think the stuff on the ship maybe went on a little too long uh well, and the drags doesn't it there there's yeah. lots of footage in that like first 20 minutes of like you know sailors dragging people through uh, across a deck and that sort of thing you know it... and when I'm, i was watching this and my immediate comparison to this my sort of direct comparison would be battle of algiers oh yeah where i'm just like same kind of idea where battle of algiers is also a pretty effective propaganda piece but it's it's very propaganda on the down low much more so than this is i'd say but battle of algiers actually sort of had characters 
Whereas this one is, it, it kind of brushes through that a little bit more. This is and, one of the things that is kind of alienating to us now, I think, with Eisenstein, because this is certainly with, I mean, he, he changes his style a bit as he goes on, partly because he changes some of his ideas and partly because he, he's trying to be a bit more conventional and fit in with the changing state mandated fashion. You know, you get mm-hmm. um, the, the rise of Stalin and, uh, you know, I'm not saying Stalin's to blame for everything but the rise of stalin is in some ways coincides with a conservative conservative turn within the soviet society and you get the rise of socialist realism and they they started mandating art that was much more straightforward and conventional and so in in some of his later films in eisenstein's later films you do get more focus on individual characters whereas certainly in these early ones he's he's very deliberately not doing that you know yeah. it's it, he's his interpretation of of um of marxism um because he he directly engages with Marx and he tries to sort of tailor film theories based on his understanding of Marxism an understanding with which I would actually have quite a few arguments but he part of it is that he wants to very much downplay the role of the individual he wants to create what the Soviet film theorists called the mass hero um, sort of to to, to create the, the heroism of crowds you know, rather than individuals mm-hmm. so it's and it is it, it's very deliberate it's very conscious it's something he's actually doing very deliberately but to us now it's pretty i mean it's pretty alienating to people at the time actually and certainly now it's a bit alienating to go through the film with 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 no real characters at all Mm. um as much as it is a very conscious political statement but that being said i mean it didn't it didn't bother me that much like i still liked the film a lot um i was just you know in love with the shots like the stuff he was doing little things like the the doctor on board the ship where you get that final shot of his glasses hanging off the ship when he gets thrown overboard to yeah <laughs> you know, go, go be worm food, you, you you son of a bitch. The guy who said, "Oh no, this meat's fine. It's just maggots. It's just dead maggot larvae on it. They're not even alive. You just wash it off of brine or whatever." Like you piece of shit. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's... we spend a lot of time talking about rotting meat in this film. Yeah, that's that's kind of like something that, like, obviously, it's there is a little bit of a kind of like Upton Sinclair, the jungle thing kind of going on. And this is not a necessarily a criticism of the film as much as like the conversation around the film where in uh, Upton Sinclair's the jungle is the uh, film where, you know, or pardon me, the, the book where he's saying like, actually we need to engage with full socialism guys and everybody kind of get took from that. Like the meatpacking industry is disgusting. (laughs) And so you got a whole bunch of like regulations around the meatpacking industry. And uh, that's about it. And I do feel like there is a little bit of a like kind of, kind of conversation around the film, which is like, well, if they just fed them decent meat, all this would have been fine. You know, let's just in uh, like enact regulations that um, <laughs> will make serving uh, maggot-infested meat to sailors not something you're allowed to do, and therefore we don't get a revolution. And so everything's basically okay. That's fine. That's fine. And that's kind of the that's kind of the tone that I get from some of the conversation around this film. And I feel like that's not something that I'm going to blame on Eisenstein and the, the the other people involved with the making of the film because like obviously they're responding to a real incident and they're kind of talking about like you know we are sailors we are people that are engaging in your imperialist war machine and this is awful and like you're not even feeding us properly and everybody who saw this film in Russia in 1925 would have had knowledge of this um, yeah. of this incident and I think that's something else that's kind of lost in terms of conversation about this like 100 years later I personally do not know 
of the actual history of this uh, of the Potemkin. I kind of had to look it up on Wikipedia and go, oh, this is basically accurate. And, uh, you know, that's because I'm a terrible leftist. Basically, I'm just a radical liberal. Um, you know, <laughs> well, hence, hence your uh, your uh, road. I get to I get to go into the gulag for the yeah. next twenty years. That's mm. that's the thing, you know. Um, it, it, the only thing I have to say is like the fascists fear me, so let me be a part of your group at least until the Nazis are defeated. Anyway, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, no, it's, speaking speaking of fascists, my second favorite part of this movie is yeah. the part where the where the crowd is start is starting to get riled up and they're like, yeah, let's revolt. And then all of a sudden, this fascist asshole steps up and says, "Let's get the Jews too." And then the crowd turns on him and beats him into a pulp. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That was something I did not know was going to happen until it happened. And then I was like, "Wow, this film from 1925 has a lot to say to politics in 2020." Mm. And uh, yeah. We can just, we and can that's, just kind of, yeah. you know, that, that's very much an example of like the Soviet regime trying to put certain ideas out there. You know, it's it's yeah. trying to it's trying and to it's propaganda. It's propaganda. Like, let's yeah. not pretend it's not propaganda. It is propaganda. Also, it's good. It's but good. The, the, exactly. the, fascist, the fascist literally gets enveloped by the socialist crowd of of uh of the rebellion they just because he disappears into them like they just yeah. swarm him and he disappears but this sort of although this circle of utterly scandalized faces i would disagree that he's necessarily fascist but uh, yeah i get I get, what you, I get what you're saying um you know he's he's a you know he's a capitalist pig who's trying to do the thing of uh you know programming people against oh let's go after the ruling class no he, he's a jew clearly that's the thing, you know. Yeah. Um, well, no, they, they, what's happening is the people are, are saying, you know, we we need to get the bloodsuckers, we need to get the vampires, and there's one guy in the crowd who's clearly middle class, you know, well-to-do, yeah. who interprets that as, yes, let's kill the Jews. And mm. the, the, the good, enlightened proletarian revolutionaries say no that's not what we mean and uh, and they kick him out that's and that's propaganda, but there's worse messages to be putting out there. You <laughs> right, know? yeah. Um, I would but, I would um, really just show that scene to uh, everyone who wants to vote for me or Pete. That's kind of my. Uh, <laughs> By the way, you mentioned Upton Sinclair. Don't uh, you know? Don't let Sergei Eisenstein hear you coupling uh, him with Upton Sinclair because Upton Sinclair actually um, fucked Eisenstein over. He he came to the states and uh, Eisenstein, uh, Eisenstein was put on a, a sort of project by him uh, filming in Mexico and he went to Mexico and filmed loads of stuff. And then when he had to go back to Russia, um, Upton Sinclair kept all the footage and cut it himself. And Eisenstein was absolutely heartbroken by this. He considered it a terrible betrayal. So yeah, don't uh, don't let Sergey hear you saying that. How? <laughs> I think he's he's been dead for a while. I don't think he's going to listen oh, to the podcast. How? And if he and if he does and wants and wants to get into my DMs, uh, I'd be happy to have a chat. Uh, that's where I land on this. I mean, you know, if he's if he's a vampire like Constantine or whatever, <laughs> maybe he's still around. Honestly, he just faked his death at age fifty or whatever the fuck it was. Uh, but yeah, I, it feels like I'm trying to like diminish this film by saying like I don't have much to say about it. But it's like I really don't, other than it's 
fucking amazing to watch. It's it's amazing to look at. And I mean, you can see the influence it had like directly like everyone I think kind of mentions uh the untouchables scene with at the courthouse with the baby carriage going down. Although, you know, the the baby the baby in that carriage uh ends up in much better uh situation afterward than the baby in this movie, which it's just like this movie is yeah, we're going to we're going to shoot a kid in the head and trample him. Then we're going to shoot his mother. Then we're going to put a baby carriage down the steps and potentially shoot the carriage full of holes and kill that baby. Although you don't really see that. Then we're just going to like slash a woman in the face with a sword. Yeah, this this movie doesn't really hold back at all. The most distressing things in the movie is the, the section with the small boy who trips mm-hmm. over on the steps and the way he's trampled over by the crowd. And I think that actually it is a really good indication of how, while this is undoubtedly propaganda it's by no means as simplistic as people often say it is. Right. Because if this was just pure simplistic propaganda, what you would have would be the noble proletariat as a whole stop and say, we must save this child. And instead what you, what you see is crowds of people running away from the, the soldiers um, and they're panicking and they're terrified and they're trampling over this kid. And it's not because they're, bad people necessarily they've they've just been organizing in solidarity with the uh, with the mutineers on the ship etc but they're fucking terrified and when people are in this sort of situation they're not always at their best you know they can just run for it and not think about who they're walking over and ultimately yeah. the blame is with the, uh, the the guys who are shooting at them undoubtedly yeah. but we still get to see ordinary people who a minute ago were organizing inspiringly we still get to see them trampling over this kid didn't you see some that cower at the side of the steps and they're it's just a small little group and she's like listen we gotta we gotta talk to the soldiers we gotta reason with them we gotta we gotta you know let them know and they go back up the steps and the soldiers open fire on them and the one who organized that little group is the only one who survives the volley the rest of them all fucking fall dead around her which i thought was quite the image i was like wow i feel like this is something we could like kind of I mean, you know, we've had a hundred years of like pulling individual images and uh, like kind of ideas out of it. Like there's a, there's a lot of subtlety that's kind of buried in this that, you know, necessarily, I kind of approach this as like, I'm going to watch this as if I'm kind of viewing it in the cinema in 1925, right? I'm just going to kind of watch it and uh, approach it that way. (laughs) Despite the fact that I'm watching it on YouTube, <laughs> you know, in, in in that context, is this the first instance of a film using? Because you have the the red flag, where it's the only shot of the only shots of color in the film are that red flag. Is this I the think first it, time it was done? I think it is because I think I read somewhere that audiences at the time were astonished by this. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't use an actual red flag because it would have showed up as black right on the in, in the in the black and white film. So they used a white flag in the filming which obviously you can't just leave because, you know, a red flag looks black, but a white flag looks white. And you can't have a white flag because that kind of fucks up the entire thing. So, yeah, they they hand-painted every frame uh, red. And then when it was shown at... I think it was when it was shown in France at a film festival or something. Apparently the audience were just... It just blew their minds. I mean, the, the like, full-color thing, like, I was so surprised upon, like... And, again, I've 
maybe seen this film before, maybe, you know, like, whatever. I was so surprised upon, like, seeing the, like, bright red flag. I literally had to Google and go, like, was this not colored in this particular YouTube video I'm watching, you know? Yeah. This is, like, not a modern recreation. But, no, this was hand-colored red for the original thing. To see this, I would love to see this filmed through a projector onto celluloid, like an original print, just to see what that looked like. Because mm-hmm. at that point in 1925, they're literally hand coloring film frames yep. yeah, on a print to put that out there to create that red flag impression. And so it's one of the most powerful images for an audience in 1925 because that red flag would have not just, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, you know, as an American in 2020, it's a little bit like if, uh, you know, it is a little bit like that moment in which like Captain Marvel has like her suit become like the, the colors of the American flag or the, the air force, but even more overt and in a way that is like the most technically proficient that is anything that you've ever seen ever, you know? Yeah. It's impossible to describe the power of that image as it was to an audience, to to a you know socialist, communist, leftist audience in 1925. Yeah, um, and, and even you know even people that weren't sort of sharing the politics, as I say, you know David Selznick saw it and he came away raving about it. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean it happened to me the first time I watched this. I what I um the. The three movies in what was sort of retrospe- retroactively been called Eisenstein's revolutionary trilogy, Strike, Battleship Potemkin, and October, also known as 10 Days That Shook the World, they were re-released on VHS in the late 90s by, uh, I think it was a company called Tartan, and they, they were in a box. And I always remember the the, the box. It was this lovely sort of bright red box with a fucking great hammer and sickle on the side <laughs> uh, with, um, with three VHS tapes in it, and also a copy of Eisenstein's book, The Film Sense. And I mm. bought that in 1997, 1998, something like that. And I sat and I watched all three of these films back to back. And I was, I was literally amazed by the effect they had on me. Like, you know, I, I was expecting something really interesting. I wasn't expecting to actually have my pulse raised, but they bloody well did. Like the scene on the, on the deck where they're threatening to, execute the sailors and they put the they put the the sheet over their heads and you see the outline of them underneath the sheet and one of them is so terrified he falls to the ground and the other soldiers are they're watching and they don't want it to happen but they don't know what they can do and their heads start bowing etc and you've got to cutting back and forth montage between the 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 guys carrying under the sheet and uh, vaculin chuck you know obviously terribly conflict you know and it just keeps going cut 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 and it's pulse racing. And then you get to the end and there's an actual yeah. fu- in the middle of a black and white film, there's an actual fucking red flag. I mean, I already had, I already had socialist convictions by then, but just apart from that, it's, and then you imagine, as you say, back in 1925 or 1926, when people are seeing this for the first time, and that is something they've never seen before. It's you no wonder it had this impact. Crazy CGI creation that is yeah. like incredibly pl- <laughs> like you can't even imagine it because it is so revolutionary. Like, and not to not to use that term lightly, but both technically and politically revolutionary. Yeah. Um, it's hard I, to imagine what very consciously the considered this. that was in 2020. 
Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. I, I, I was just going to, Eisenstein very consciously considered the, the, the linkage between revolutionary technique in art and revolutionary politics. That was you something know, he was very deliberately yeah. doing. Obviously, well. it's just it's just in that era, it's so new. And like, I feel like, sorry, Lee, I'm not trying to, I, I know you're trying to talk a little bit, but, uh, you know, it's almost <laughs> like, don't care. yeah. I don't. I I talk over Lee all the time. Everybody knows. Uh, listen to this podcast. It's almost like you can't do this in film in 2020, like because film is like this established medium that has existed for long enough that like we have like kind of established norms. The only way to do this is in some new mass medium that like is going to exist. Yeah. And so I do feel like it's like you know you need some like radical like twitter leftism or something you know like some some radical like kind of kind of online thing or some new thing that's going to exist that's going to galvanize the masses and i have so much like complicated political talk about this that i'm not even <laughs> jack and i could talk about for hours but like it's, it's gonna totally be not um, the place for, for it's gonna be it's gonna be holographic sex workers yeah, exactly. Yeah. Holographic sex workers or something. The, you know, the next frontier will be immersive virtual reality simulations, won't it? I mean, yeah. that is going to happen. And whatever you think about that politically, there's there's already a, an extensive political and literature and a literature of cultural criticism about simulation and stuff like that. Whatever you think about that politically, just in terms of making it work as a medium, the language of it will have to be invented because, you know, if it's just like, if it's just like life, if you plug, if you plug yourself, you know, plug the thing into the back of your neck or put on the VR helmet, however it ends up working. And it's just like wandering around in something that's, that's exactly like real life. That's not going to work as a saleable artistic or immersive experience. It's just going to be boring. So it will need to be structured in some way, which means it will have to have some kind of language and that will have to be invented. And that has not, been done yet and this is this film is an artifact of the process of, of exactly this kind of language of a new artistic medium being invented that's what we're watching when we watch this film yeah and that's why the politics and the uh the artistry really can't be disassociated despite the fact that like you know so many film scholar liberal you know, quote unquote, liberal film scholars uh, do uh, try to do that. And I feel yeah. like not seeing this as something that is like fundamentally a part of a socialist, um, you know, leftist uh, red revolution um, is to is to uh, not give the film its proper place. If anything, Absolutely. it's underrated. You know, <laughs> in terms, yeah. of, in terms well, of like an understanding of the history of cinema, like it's not just a it's not just a product of the history of cinema. It's a product of the history of like politics. The people that are talking about this, generally speaking, are people who are themselves subject to an, an ideological lens. They're looking at it through an ideal, ideological lens, which is some or other, you know, variety of liberalism. And they're, they're buying that proper, that idea, that ideological idea of propaganda that we talked about earlier. They're not, I mean, you only have to look at the variety of ideas within just Soviet cinema. You have opposed to Eisenstein, who's very much against 
um, he's he's very much in favor of story, but he's very much against stories about individual heroes and individual characters. And he's very much about uh, putting frenetic movement and conflict on screen because of his uh, reading of Marxist philosophy. He thinks contradiction is at the heart of everything. His reading of the Marxist dialectic leads him to think we need to put contradiction on screen. And his idea of montage is that you create you know, he, he goes for, I think, a bit of a crude version of sort of the, the dialectic where you, you represent the dialectic of thesis, synthesis, antithesis as uh, through montage, where you have an image and then you have another image and that creates the idea as sort of the synthesis, you know. Um, and you have that on the one hand. And then you have somebody like Vertov, who's aggressively anti-story and pro-realism. He makes uh, documentaries and he's, he's ex- extremely interested in trying to film the process of making film. You have Man with a Movie Camera, which is kind of a film about the process of making Man with a Movie Camera. Uh, yeah. And then and they, these two argue with each other. And then you have Padovkin, who's very interested in characterization, almost kitchen sink drama. You look at something like uh, The End of St. Petersburg. And in complete contrast to Eisenstein, Padovkin's all about doing it in a very flowing, linked linear way uh he, he's still using cutting obviously because you know editing is the basis of of cinema and the, the soviet theory is very they're all using some variety of montage but he's using it in a very as i say in a, in a much more as i say a, a linear way where the shots are linked to each other as opposed to eisenstein who's deliberately cutting all over the place so even within this this soviet state production factory which is supposed to be supposed to be all just ideologues creating propaganda you have this incredible variety of approaches so if you if you just look at this as simplistic propaganda you're you're just objectively wrong i think not that i'm a fucking uh someone who's seen a lot of uh communist art necessarily but this is probably the one of the finest pieces i've seen of that sort of thing if that makes sense yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the super big, high budget example of a thing ends up being like a representation of a thing, and ends up being the like uh, remembered as this is a thing that invented montage. And like clearly, that's not a thing that we're actually saying when we talk about Battleship Potemkin. No, Battleship Potemkin didn't invent the concept. Like Eisenstein was part of a group of people we're all kind of working, uh, doing the same thing. And it's not so much as montage was invented here as much as montage was used for a particular purpose here in a high-budget way for a particular purpose. And so, you know, montage, I mean, I might quibble a little bit with Jack in saying, like, uh, I think Birth of a Nation uh, was, despite its, like, horrifyingly racist, uh, et cetera, uh, you know, kind of, kind of connotations, um, was probably a little bit more... Uh, influential and uh, original than than Jack and Platt earlier. And uh, that's something that uh, maybe he and I would discuss. Uh, I mean, I'm perfectly willing to to admit that I was wrong. At the same time, I'm just kind of, of, uh, you know, kind of wrapping up here. I feel like we're wrapping up. I feel like we've, the last episode was about like two films about like kind of the conquest of the American West. And those two films are also very overtly propaganda, despite the fact that they're not funded by the U.S. government in like this kind of direct way, right? Like it's about like kind of we're out there, we're doing the covered wagon and the iron horse. It's about like we're conquering the West. We're doing the thing. We're like kind of creating our national myth in this way. 
and I think it's really interesting that the, and by interesting, I mean damning, um, that the uh, American movies that were like huge, uh, big budget blockbusters that were funded to this degree were all about like, and this is the point in which we like murdered all the Native Americans. <laughs> and uh, the big version of that in uh, Russia was like, and this is the point in which, uh, you know, the workers uh, overthrew uh, their their oppressors. You know the the imperialist oppressors. I think there's a really complicated narrative. I'd really love to see like somebody do a these three films together uh, conversation about like what does this mean in terms of the overall kind of political ideology and the way that propaganda works and and that's like I think there's a really complicated uh, message here that we've kind of uh, inadvertently kind of gathered in the in the last two episodes. I would want to say that as as much as I love this film, both for its its artistry and its and its message, this is still a film that is the product of a society with class and a society with exploitation and a society with repression in a more state organized and centralized way than than uh, United States, for instance, but nevertheless in in a very similar way. And as such, what what we're watching here is the the ideology of a particular society. And in much the same way that American movies are going to put forward a certain ideological view of the United States, this movie puts forward an ideological view of the Soviet Union, even though, of course, it's set in 1905. It's still it's still saying, you know, these are our values as a society. This is where we come from, etc. This is what we and to a, to a very great extent, that's not true. I mean, by, by <laughs> there's a great deal of state repression, state control. It's still, as I say, a class society with exploitation. So what what we have is kind of, on the one hand, when we look at the American movies, we're looking at an overtly capitalist society putting forward its ideological myths and fairy tales about liberty and freedom and stuff like that. And we, when we watch Battleship Potemkin, we are watching something that's not a million miles distant you know from right. from the russian side uh it's just that the ideals in question in on the russian side are ones that i buy into a great deal more um that still leaves the problem of the society that produced this piece of work not living up to them mm-hmm. yep yeah and i think that's something that's important for people watching this to understand because i was tonight looking over some of the criticism of this like i was just actually just kind of perusing letterbox to see what people had to say about it and i'm I, sure and that was a uh, really reasonable uh, place no, there's a lot of great stuff on letterbox but i mean i went i went directly to the worst reviews first and went to that list and a lot of it was just like useless commie propaganda uh really worked out for the communists and uh, name a communist state that worked, and uh, Joseph Stalin for the win, and, you know, like, really stupid fucking reviews like that that just kind of, like, treat the film as black and white, just fucking propaganda. What's, and, and What's the betting that the same people react incredibly badly if anybody critiques, like, you know, a, a Marvel movie on political grounds? Oh, yeah. you know, triggered snowflake, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the negative reviews I saw in this just didn't give this film any sort of nuance when they were you know looking into it in that regard. They were they, they almost seemed like half the people actually didn't watch the film and were just oh yeah no this is com commie propaganda I can just I can just fuck off on Letterboxd and give it half a star and say commie propaganda. There's my review and then and all my friends will vote it up 
and, and thumb it up or whatever. You know what? I I I think you could be right about that. Yeah, <laughs> but that, uh, would, yeah. that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me sadly if people didn't actually watch it but just left a comment about commie propaganda, assuming they know all about it d- despite not having watched it. I, I was also watched ten minutes of it on TCM, which like, well, ironically makes them uh, ideological dogmatists, doesn't it? <laughs> and there also there was a lot of reviews. Uh, a lot of them were just like obviously very young people uh, who had to watch this for film class and didn't like oh. it because they found it boring. <laughs> they I didn't mean, talk I, in the film. I can I can totally see seeing this like so much of the like you know required curriculum you like kind of watch in a in, a, in school or like a, books that you read. Mm-hmm. You kind of like read it because you have to. You get like two weeks to like cram through like a whole bunch of material. You kind of just watch it and kind of like repair it back the kind of bullshit that you kind of gather, yeah. and you don't really absorb it. And I feel like like I don't blame kids who are like nineteen years old for like watching this film and kind of going like, yeah, it's great. It's got like uh, early instances of the montage, uh, <laughs> like uh, kind of repeat the Eisenstein uh, cool shot effect. Look, this is great. Look, he broke a plate. He broke a plate. Well, it's, just, uh, like amazing. I, it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, it's great. It's great. Can, can yeah, I no. Just, like, the lions. Just, the like, lions. It's intellectual montage. Yeah. Can, can I just like talk to these fucking college kids for a second though? How about instead of just rushing out to put this review on Letterboxd, even if your fucking professor tells you to do it and he'll give you credit for it, don't fucking do it. Just wait. Like wait five years and come back and watch it again and then see what you think of it. Don't, don't, don't watch it under the, uh, under the criteria that it's for, you know, schoolwork or whatever. And it, it, Oh, we're, we're just going to deconstruct it for its film techniques. And that's all that's worthwhile for it. (laughs) If you, if the whole reason that you've posted the review on letterboxd is because your professor told you to do it, like you were forced to watch it. And then you were forced to write a review for it and put it on Letterboxd, and you got that for a grade. You are actually being oppressed by <laughs> the capitalist system. You know? See, I don't, I don't know if that's happening, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that's like something that's happening in modern college these days. Oh yeah, no, I again, I suspect you're right, and I, I understand why somebody now could put this on and just be completely alienated by it and bored by it and not because you because this stuff this is very old. I mean, this is getting mm-hmm. on for a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. It's the product of a fundamentally different world, and you know we don't have the surrounding context, the surrounding right. knowledge that people at the time had. And not only do we not have it, and you know, we we don't have the surrounding context that people had when they watched movies that were made in 1971, right? Mm-hmm. But it, the context <laughs> that we're missing from 1925 is is so much more context missing because the further you go back in time, the 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 more remote everything is. So yeah, I understand why people in exactly the same way that I understand why people their first encounter with Shakespeare, you know, if they haven't been prepared for it, what the fuck is this? What am I listening yeah. to? What's happening? What are, what are these people? What are they saying? I get that. Absolutely. It happened to me first time I watched Shakespeare. The, if that's what's happening to them, then they're not being served very well by their teacher, are they? Right. Because it should be the teacher's job to put this in context for them so that they can get it. Well, it becomes a part of like the curriculum, and I feel like that's something that like we kind of run into when we do these really old movies. And even movies that are like you know, 30 years 
older, younger than this, you know, we run into like, oh, this is homework. This is something that you kind of have to do and not like, let's understand this in context. Let's approach it as something that uh, we would have seen theatrically at the time, at least to sort of understand it, you know, and, and I feel like that, you know, the, the idea, you know, it's almost, <laughs> you know, um, Jack will, uh, Jack will speak to this much more eloquently than I can uh, if he, if he agrees with me, but the very idea that we've um, used this film as uh, fundamentally a conversation about the Kuleshov cut, you know, uh, is to fundamentally like embrace the film within a capitalist framework. Ultimately, you know, it is to, it is to rob the film of its real power, uh, which is for revolution. I come at the end of this film, uh, just kind of watching it and going like, I don't, I don't really want to talk about the politics of this, but the idea that there's a revolt in the center of a major city in America and the military will refuse to fire on them. That's like, fucking weird. That is, that is fucking bizarre. And that yeah. speaks to a fundamental difference between like what actually happened in 19, uh, 1905 versus what the reality of, of 2020 is versus uh you know the uh, in in the western us uh the bundy clan uh literally like invade <laughs> like invade a wildlife refuge and uh the fbi the federal law enforcement refuses to fire on them because they agree with their ideological agenda and there's a huge history of you know anything left of center gets approached by this, and this is a hugely complicated topic that I wasn't really trying to bring up, but it is like it is alienating for someone kind of watching it now. Like it feels like this kind of big fake Deus ex machina kind of ending, but that's actually kind of how the history worked. And the fact that that's kind of how the history worked, Jack is gonna uh, Jack is gonna tell me I'm bullshitting. <laughs> Um, no, no. I was, I was just going to say this is another example of the film actually not being as propagandistic as it could, because yeah. the reason that other ship didn't fire on the Potemkin was because uh, they'd kind of been a mutiny on that ship as well, and yeah. the the the, the pro mutiny sailors had taken over the ship, and they set up their own, uh, they'd elected their own revolutionary committee on board that ship as well as the actually as well what, as the what, Potemkin. What brought the Potemkin down wasn't it was that some of the people who were still pro the previous captain eventually mutinied themselves and took it back, if exactly. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and then like like twenty odd of the thirty sailors who actually revolted uh, initially were killed like they went to seek refuge or something and got murdered for the most part and you know yeah, yeah. Well, but they um they had to f they fled to Romania i think yeah and, um some of them decided to go back to russia and i think it, almost exclusively they were then killed by the tsarist regime right right yeah I but yeah, you, you can't you you can't imagine stuff like that uh, happening in our world. But of course, you know the early twentieth century was an era of revolution, and uh, I think a lot of the problem is probably people who are getting taught this on a, on a film study syllabus. They're getting taught it by people who, ironically enough, are looking at it from a very blinkered and very dogmatic ideological perspective, and are thus incapable of actually putting it in its proper context for their student. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, that. That lion statue shot, that three shot sequence, is probably one of the best things I've ever seen on film. Like I was, I was genuinely like taken aback. Like, wow, that's 
that's an amazing thing he did right there. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. And it's a it's a perfect example of um because what you know the thing that marks because he's often said Eisenstein sort of invented montage. Of course he didn't. Mm-hmm. But what he did was he theorized it and he came up with these various different types. Uh and you can you know, again, I have my issues with some of it. Um, mm-hmm. But um, one of one of his types of montage is um, what he called intellectual montage, which is that you can create an idea or an association or a meaning in the mind of the viewer just by, you know, it, there's an image and there's another image. And they're often more contrasting than those ones. But the, the lines, the three lines are kind of a perfect things coming in threes. That's another very Eisenstein thing. But they're kind of a perfect example of that because he uses just, you know, one stone lion cut another stone lion cut a third stone lion and there you have just this instant just completely unbidden and un uh, you know you're not being told to no, nobody's put a title card up mm-hmm. but it just it creates this idea in your head that a power is awaking the people are waking up yeah and, and I, I didn't i didn't even necessarily no you don't uh, consciously well, no, I didn't even necessarily take it as the people waking up. I looked at it as the establishment getting rumbled because I connected Lion to uh, imperialism, like kingship, like czars. And it's like, oh, all, right. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the lion is awake, and it's like, oh shit, something's well, going that's brilliant. on. Brilliant! No, that that works perfectly. That's brilliant because that works just as well as my reaction to it. That's, and that's be, fantastic. And, and, and before that, there was like Cupid statues or something as well. I don't know what that <laughs> symbolizes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's she's the woman with the baby is wearing some kind of logo on her belt buckle as well. I've never quite been able to make out what that is. Mm. But I think it's I think it's actually meant to be sort of a um, an echo of the czarist symbol that's on the side of one of the boats earlier in the film. Yeah, so uh, I don't really have much uh, trivia. Actually, we basically covered all the trivia in our actual discussion. There, we, there, we kind of... there is no trivia for this film. Nobody knows yeah. anything about this film. There's no conversation around it. This is one of those <laughs> obscure films that like, really people should seek out. It's kind of hard to find. Uh, yeah, but um, I, I will note, like, I don't really have box office numbers or anything here, but uh, the film censorship boards of several countries felt this movie would spread communism. So uh, France <laughs> imposed a ban after a brief run in 1925 and lifted it in 1953 after the death of Russian leader Joseph Stalin. And the UK banned it up until 1954, which actually seems kind of early for them, to, because, given the stuff that they put on the ban list. Uh, but, you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, it's I, ironic I think... that they wait until Stalin dies, because, you know, Stalin crushed loads of rebellions like this. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm still trying to square in my head how it, it's kind of it's kind of ironic that the uh, that the the initial leader of the rebellion of the mutiny on the ship has the whole Joseph Stalin mustache and everything, you know. Like we didn't even talk about the gay subtext in the uh, the hammocks and everything. But... Oh God, yeah. Because uh, well, Eisenstein was probably bisexual, by the way. Not really. Okay. <laughs> It, it, it is, you know, very much like there are these like strong, burly men in the uh, in the bowels of the ship. They and, all got uh, their they're, they're all working and they sleep in hammocks together. And everything is basically fine, despite the fact that they're exploited until like some guy comes and like wakes him up because he's clumsy. And that is 
the villain of the piece ultimately. Well, he you know? all, all he does is like slap the the youngest sailor with a strap or something, and then the sailor. He he's he's like crying almost like there's there's no mark on him or anything he he turns over and he's almost crying and then and he's kind of like the he's kind of like the twee young gay guy I guess and then there's like the o- older burly sailor like comforts him or whatever you know so who knows oh, yeah there, I bet there was a I bet there was a lot of that there's uh, a you know there's a lot of subtext in like Moby Dick for instance you know oh there's like Jesus Christ know, Moby Dick yeah that's full there's, of that stuff there's so much there's a very gay reading of all of this and uh, we're just gonna leave <laughs> it that. I mean you, outside of the whale itself yeah yeah there's definitely a lot of... <laughs> uh, but yeah uh, this was great uh, what what are we doing next Daniel what's the next uh, film we're doing the general the um, general oh wow. You're welcome back. If you want to come back, yeah. Jack, you know, you're always welcome on this podcast. Yeah, I know we're doing the general next week. Yeah, if you want to come back, Jack, you're invited. Oh, that's very nice of you. I'll see. Yeah, I feel bad because I think we're going to end up skipping Harold Lloyd on this uh, skip through, but we're definitely doing some Keaton and we're doing some Chaplin uh, before we get to the 40s. So, what, uh, yeah. uh, what's the Chaplin you're going to do? Uh, I don't know. We're definitely doing uh, City Lights. Um, Oh wow, City <clears throat> Lights is great. Maybe I'll come back for Chaplin. I don't know. Sure. Okay. I mean, welcome. you know, you're here. welcome to come back for anything you want to come back on. But... It is funny. It is funny how people like don't like. Oh, why didn't you invite me on this? Like everybody who's ever been on the show is always welcome back for any particular episode. That's just especially like our deep friends, like Jack mm-hmm. and James and Kit. It's like, oh my god, I would love to have been a part of that. Well, why didn't you just fucking say something? It's kinda, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I think the, the the thing is, is like I, I've noticed, and I mean, I have this problem too. All podcasters that are generally cool are also incredibly polite and introverted and they don't want to put themselves out there like hey by the way i'd love to be on that episode you do at this because you don't want to sound like a fucking asshole who's trying to be intrusive and you know the it, it's just that weird uh ritualistic japanese uh politeness where it's like you even though you know it's all bullshit you, you don't want to overstep the bounds and and, and break the ritual and, and like actually you know yeah i don't yeah. know it's a lot of thing. a lot of your online friends are British as well, which of course makes things even worse. Yeah, as an American, I just like kind of like take my steel-toed boots and just step on everyone and go like, "Hey, I'll be a part of this." Yeah. I'm just like a giant <laughs> puppy, you know, that just kind of comes on as like, "Hey, I'd like to be a part of this," and then like out of politeness, my British friends go, "I guess you can be on." Yeah. <laughs> You're not really invited, but uh, like I don't know how to say no politely, and it's like thank you. Also, I live in the greatest empire the world has ever known, and we will bomb you if you don't put me. <laughs> I feel like half the time the the Brits talking about like their shitty internet is just an excuse to keep us off their podcast. That's, <laughs> that's ultimately <laughs> oh, it turns it turns out there's no there's no connectivity over the Atlantic. Uh, you should you should really just go off and do your own thing. You will be mm-hmm. happier. And uh, I'm sorry you can't be on. That's how. Well, it we'll, is, we'll, yeah. we'll podcast by telegram or telegraph or whatever. <laughs> sometime, yeah. yeah. No, it's 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 true. Our our internet is terrible here because we because um you know socialist societies like we have here are are all uh, are all terrible. <laughs> Actually, European internet is like three times faster than American. Internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're not part of Europe anymore, so it's like it's terrible. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Our sovereignty back, which means you know, I suppose we'll end up with American internet. Great. Hold, hold on, <laughs> hold on. We can't be talking about politics on a podcast about Battleship Potemkin. No. That is not allowed. That is not allowed. Well, We're only allowed to talk about uh, montage. We're only allowed to talk about montage. Yeah, we'll really take the five people listen to us. So it's, <laughs> it's very, um, it's actually really depressing to be talking about Battleship Potemkin, and you know, to be in 2020, and yeah. here it all still is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we we talk about how it's like a different world, but it's kind of the same world. It's just maybe through different lenses a bit, but that's yeah. about it. It's, it's um, the same world, except that now there's no hope. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, Jack, uh, where can people find hope following you on the internet? Well, you can... Uh, <laughs> you can Did you like that segue? To... No, oh, that was brilliant. That yeah. was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, w- worthy of a, of a Soviet uh, continuity announcer. Um, <laughs> you can find me at, uh, at underscore Jack underscore Graham on Twitter, which will, which, where you will find links to pretty much everything I do, including... Uh, a blog that I used to write but don't really write anymore and a podcast that I do now called I Don't Speak German which is about uh, white nationalists and you won't find much hope in that I'm afraid <laughs> hope hope not included in that one uh, Daniel also does that I think yeah, yeah, yeah I've been, I've been on a couple of episodes of that yeah yeah I know I do it with somebody with a beard I think it's I think it's you yeah yeah, so Daniel, uh, uh, elucidate us on I'm, that. I'm actually, I'm actually on uh, more than two episodes of I Don't Speak German. I'm on episode, I'm on every episode of I Don't Speak German, because like I've been researching uh, fascists for years and uh, listening to literally thousands of hours of their content, and I talk to Jack every week or two about the things that I found, <laughs> and um, yeah, that's pretty disgusting. I think there's a great deal of hope in that podcast, honestly. Um, Despite the fact that it is, uh, it has been described to me as the literally darkest podcast on the internet. Like there, there is no darker uh, place think, to go. I think there's there's hope in gallows humor and in black comedy, well, and there's hope in the fact that they hate me for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's the hope is kind of a meta hope in that like uh, you know Nazis threaten me with death after listening to the podcast that's the hope ultimately cuz they hear about what silly fucks they actually are because they hear that somebody knows and i'm not the mm-hmm. only one that knows i'm just the one talking about it and so they're not hiding in the way they think they are and that's really like i hate to say like you know fascists <laughs> They really can't handle anyone outside of their little club knowing who they are and talking about it. And um, mocking them has great power. And that's what we do on I Don't Speak German. So, uh, yeah, well, if, yeah. if, if, if they don't like it, they shouldn't stand in a crowd of fucking socialists and say, let's stomp the Jews. <laughs> because exactly. it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up bad for you. You're going to be <laughs> yeah. swamped warmed up at the tide uh and you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com find us at apple Podcasts, youtube facebook join the facebook group best place to get in touch with us find out what's coming up on the podcast and you know give your recommendations your criticisms your you know you can laud us with praise and then tell us what great incredibly smart people we actually are uh even on the podcast that jack aren't isn't on you know uh 
you know the ones the, the dumb ones where we we, yeah. we we just we just sort of paddle around the tide pool like stupid tadpoles and uh, and you know give our stupid opinions and every once in a while Jack shows up and like says something smart and yeah, yeah. Hey, look, this is your insecurity talking I didn't say any of this yeah it really is it's, you it's didn't like, have to you didn't have to we we got yeah it. it's fine it's fine yeah. it's projecting at this point yeah um. But yeah, thank you guys for listening. Uh, again, thank you, Jack. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, we'll be back when we're back. Goodbye. So I'd like to know when you got the notion. Said I'd like to know when you got the notion. Rock the boat. I don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat. I don't take the boat. Don't rock the boat, baby. Rock the boat. Ever since our voyage of love began, your touch has thrilled me like the rush of the wind. And your arms have held me safe from a rolling sea. There's always been a quiet place to harbor you and me. That flows from you Don't let me drift away, my dear When love can see me through Our love is like a ship on the ocean
You've been listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.